How many of you have used a compass before? A few of you, good, all right. If you have, you know then that a compass always points to north, unless you're near a magnet. Good. We got some smart folks here today. I hope I wrote something good. Unless you're near a magnet, compasses always point north, and unless you have that magnet, and then the needle starts going kind of towards the magnet, because a compass is designed to, to read what magnetic north is on, uh, on the earth. And by knowing where north is, you can figure out other directions, you can figure out your way back, you can figure out uh, where you are supposed to be going. A little bit more crude than GPS that tells you turn now, but it gives you the direction that you are supposed to be going. Like I said, what, the only exception is when you have that magnet near you, and then you lose your sense of which way you're going. Or if you don't have a, a compass. Because if you are going one direction and you start thinking, I don't recognize this, that's an unsettling feeling. And then you start thinking, well, maybe I should have turned left back there when I turned right. You think, well, maybe I'll, 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 I'll double back and I'll, I'll figure out where, where I was supposed to, or, or was I supposed to go straight through that intersection? Or... Being in the great city of Pittsburgh, we're like, am I supposed to be on that road up there? <laughs> and you start thinking, ooh, where am I? And sometimes if you take that left or you take that right, when you should have gone straight, either one would have been wrong. The opposite direction would have been the wrong way to go too. And so it reflects life in that not all of our decisions are as easy as, should I do this or that? There's kind of a 360-degree de view that we have to consider. And that's going to be instructive for talking about our story today. We are going, uh, we are going to be in 1 Kings chapter 12. So go ahead and take out your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings is conveniently located between 2 Samuel and 2 Kings. So if you find either one of those, you can know that First that Kings is in between the two of those. But we're going to be in First Kings, and we're going to be seeing how uh, we're going to be seeing how um, we really need to have a good compass. We really need to have a good sense of direction. And what we find out is that faithfulness, faithfulness is a believer's true north. Faithfulness is a believer's true north. And we'll talk about the fact that the opposite of bad is not necessarily good and that faithfulness to God grounds our direction. But faithfulness is a believer's true north. So 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 17, and then we're going to skip a few verses and go to verse 25. So hear God's word as I share it with you. Rehoboam, that is Solomon's son, went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. Solomon had just died. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us. 
But now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people? He asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice that the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, What is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, Lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. That is a whip with, with shards of things embedded into it. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. As the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord. To fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. When all Israel saw the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. Then on to verse 25. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, The kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, the other in Dan. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that your word is instructive to us, that you have not left us alone to figure out life on our own, but indeed you have given us your word so that we may know how to live and that we may live in relationship with you. So during this time, show us what we need to see to live into relationship with you, to reflect your grace to the world and to be the people that you have called us to be. Come now and speak through my words. My own are empty, just a a vapor in the wind, but you, O Lord, you hold the very words of eternal life. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, 
and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tell you what, this is great. I can have both my notebook and my Bible right here. I don't know what I'm going to do now. All right, so who thinks that this story is a story about listening to elders? A few of them? Wow. How many of you have fallen asleep? Good, okay, thank you. Uh, good, good. Or are you just caught up in all the names and all the places and you're still just trying to figure out the basic plot line here? Okay, there we go. All right, at least we get some of that. Uh, you know, how many of you in here think that, that <coughs> Rehoboam, the king in the south, that, that, that he should have listened to the elders of the people? that that was the correct choice. All right, how many of you think that Rehoboam was right in listening to the, to the young men? By the way, we're talking about 40-year-olds. It's not as young as you might think. All right, none of you. How many of you think that, it, that this might just be something about something else entirely and that we need to kind of take a look at what's going on here? A couple of you. All right, yeah, I, I, we need to take a look at this passage. Because commentary after commentary, as I was going through this passage this week, I thought, man, this is going to be a hard thing for a 40-year-old pastor to preach because it's this, and it's, like I said, Rehoboam was 41 years old in this passage, so I'm like, ah, oh, this, is, this is not going to preach very well. But it was very interesting. The more I read in commentary after commentary, uh, I went through each of them, uh, with a couple of notable exceptions, affirmed that this passage is not a, has nothing to do with elders versus youth. And after reading and considering and, and struggling with the passage myself, I, I actually came to the same conclusion. Not because of what was said, but because of what was not said. In this passage, we have a king, King Rehoboam, who's trying to exert his authority over the kingdom. In, in Israel's day, in, in Judah's day, the king had to get the approval of the elders of Israel in order to rule. And Rehoboam had that from Judah because he was of the tribe of Judah. He was the hometown favorite. He had hometown advantage. But he needed the approval of the, the elders of the other ten tribes of Israel. So he went up to the city of Shechem to meet with them. And that's what this is about. You know, the elders of the tribe of Israel didn't say, listen, Rehoboam, we want independence and we want it now. Give me liberty or give me death. What they went and sought was they sought leniency from Rehoboam. They went and they sought, you know, will you be willing to, to ease off of the forced labor? Will you be willing to ease off of the taxes that were put on to us? You see, Solomon had gone through a number of building campaigns. Solomon had built the temple. Solomon had built uh, part of the city walls of Jerusalem. Solomon had built the, the terraces that were around the city of Jerusalem. And in order to do that, I learned a term this week, he had to use corvée labor, forced labor. 
He conscripted people in order to go in service and to make these massive building projects. Generally, it was for a, a, a period of time. Generally, not the people of Israel, uh, but the, the foreigners living within Israel. But at the end of the day, he needed to get these works done. And so he conscripted labor in order to do that. And what the Israelites were saying is, can we back off of some of these building projects for a while? As you talk about leadership, as you talk about uh, how to lead people and lead organizations, one of the things that, that um, uh, leadership experts will say is that there's a certain amount of elasticity with people and with organizations. You can only push people so far and then you got to kind of ease back and bring things back to a state of normalcy for a while. And then after, you know, everyone takes a good breath, then you can start pushing again. Rehoboam, if he had been wise, would have recognized this moment as a moment where you can't push the people any farther, but we need to take a step back and say, yeah, we could probably ease off of some of the building projects at this point. So we have a king in this story. We have a possible rival king, Jeroboam, uh, was an official under Solomon and fell out of favor, and Solomon tried to kill him. But he was a favorite of the northern ten tribes, and so when he hears that Solomon is dead, he comes back to the northern ten tribes. They, uh, in fact, it seems like they have sent for him and made him a spokesman. And so you have a king, and you have this, this leader of the opposition, and then you have uh, elders in Israel, which are a common thing, and then you have this group of youth, youths that are giving advice as well. We have all these characters, but like I said, it isn't what I saw in the passage that convinced me of this passage. It's what I didn't see. Did you miss a character in there? Is there a character that you noticed is conspicuously absent from this passage? Hmm. I'm hearing, yes, God was not in the passage. Let's talk about the fact that the advice of the young men is outright bad advice. We're going to come back to this idea about God not being there in a second. I want to look at the advice itself. The advice of the young men is outright bad advice. It adds to the misery of the people. It refuses to the, listen to the people. It exerts power in a proud and arrogant way. There is really no redeeming quality to the young men's advice doesn't mean that there aren't times that we need to push people and that involves pain. Any sports coach can tell you that. But you have to listen to people and you have to listen for those signs, like I said, that they needed to relax just a little bit. And the other thing is that, that when we push people past their limits, when we push people in order to make them better, we do that from a position of love and caring. We don't do that from a position of power and authority. We may leverage our power and our authority as, as coaches, as parents, as spiritual leaders, but we don't use that in order just to use it. We do it in service to love and caring. 
doesn't mean we do it perfectly either. But again, we do it in service to love and caring. That's not what's going on here. And so the advice of the young men is just kind of outright bad advice. But what about the advice of the elders? As we look at the advice of the elders, there are some redeeming qualities to the, to the advice of the elders, are there not? If today you are willing to serve these people, they in turn will serve you forever. Sounds like pretty good advice. Sounds like decent, and there are actually a number of, of qualities in this advice that, that are redeeming. There are a number of these things that are Christ-like good qualities in this advice. Serve the people, servant leadership, because Jesus Christ came not to uh, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The idea of serving, but the, there's a, that little hiccup where it says, if, if today you serve them and you give them a favorable answer, then they're going to serve you forever. I don't know that it was entirely 100% uh, uh, altruistic advice. Give a, good adva- uh, give a good answer today so that they're going to serve you forever. Get them on the hook and you'll take them hook, hook line, and sinker. There are redeeming qualities to this advice. But as we mentioned, the key missing character is the, uh, is the, is the character of God. And what this illustrates is that the opposite of faithfulness is unfaithfulness. But the opposite of unfaithfulness is not necessarily faithfulness. What do I mean by that? Well, the opposite of the young men's advice was the advice of the elders, was it not? Harsh answer, lenient answer. Both were unfaithful, though. The, the, the young men's advice was just outright wrong. But the, the advice of the elders never pointed King Rehoboam back to God's leading. Did not point them back to waiting upon the Lord, waiting like King David did and waiting like Solomon did at the beginning of his kingship. Neither side sought to be faithful to God. Last week, we talked about the fact that disciples wait on God's timing and plan. David exemplified seeking God's timing and God's plan, even when we might think that he already had it. He attacks the Philistines once, and the next day, he seeks God's uh, leading again, and God says, I want you to attack a different way, and I want you to wait on these signs. Most of us would have taken the advice from the first day and just kept going. Rehoboam's error isn't in taking the advice of the young men over the advice of the elders. Rehoboam's error is in not seeking God's leading. There was practical wisdom that he ignored, yes, but his error is in not seeking God's leading. How quickly did we jump to make this a story about young versus old? How quickly did our minds kind of go to that sort of thinking? 
And until we pointed it out, and if maybe there hadn't been a children's sermon ahead of time, those pesky children's sermon that teaches us more than the regular sermon at times, it's okay. We're all kids at heart. Did you notice that God wasn't in the story? And just thought, come on, Rehoboam. Don't give, don't be a jerk. Don't give them the mean answer. Are we intentionally seeking God as David did and so noticed that God's leading was nowhere in the story? Did we notice that? And it shows us that that two wrongs don't make a right as we were taught as kids. That, That... Just listening to the other wrong would have made the situation right. No, we needed to take an entirely different direction. We needed a compass that pointed us to true north. Last week, I challenged you to intentionally incorporate God's leading into three of your decisions during the week. I hope you did that. That's a, that's a challenge. It's a, it's, a, it's a waiting process, but it's also a dependence process. Again, this process wasn't done by anyone in this week's passage. And we have to understand that the great failing across all the characters, including Jeroboam, who actually had a promise from God that he would rule the northern ten tribes, was that they didn't seek God's leading. Why does this matter? Why does this matter in in day-to-day life? Can't we use right principles? Why can't we just boil this down to to correct thinking? And can't we boil this down to easy principles like, you know, don't be a jerk? How many things in life would just be, be fixed if we just followed that rule, eh? Don't be a jerk. Or be nice to people, or or when in doubt, choose love. Things that are are sound like good principles. Why can't we boil things down to this. Why does seeking the will of God in our life time and time again matter? One of the things that we want to suggest here, and one of the things that David's life illustrates, is the fact that that we can follow rules but still miss the will of God. We can follow right rules and still miss the will of God. There are times in our lives where, where we will say, I followed all the conventional wisdom. I, I, I was a nice person and, and still this thing blew up in my face and I don't know why. God, I, God, I was nice. I, I, I used a calm tone. I, I, I did this, I did that. Why did this situation still blow up in my face? I I sought to to advance in my company by doing the right things. I was honest. I, I, I do things correctly. I have integrity. But hear this. Even those right rules don't necessarily incorporate God's will into our lives. If we're just following rules, we are not seeking God's will. And that's what he wants. And so, 
you know, we can use right rules and decision-making and still miss God's will. And, and the second idea is very, very close to it, which is we can use right rules and never have a relationship with God. We can use right rules and never have a relationship with God. We can follow right rules with people and still never have a relationship with them. If you had a spouse or a significant other and you just followed the right rules, okay, I'm going to say the right things at the right time and I'm going to to take the right actions at the right time, does that necessarily ensure that you have a good relationship? No, of course not. Because underneath that can can form one of two things. Either you're the rule follower, if you uh, know the story of the prodigals, you might know the older son, the, the rule follower, I did this, 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 and this, and you know that there can be a cold, dead orthodoxy in that. I did this for you, I did this for you, I did this for you, and still you won't let me do X, Y, and Z. And bitterness builds up. And bitterness, if we are rule followers, if we follow the right rules but have no relationship with God, then we can turn into bitter followers of God. I did this, I did this, and I did this. So why did you take this from me? And why did, you, why did this relationship blow up? And, and why did my marriage fall apart? And, and why, did, why did you take this person out of my life? And bitterness builds up because we start putting things on our own scales. And like the older son who said, I've served you my entire life and you didn't even give me a goat to celebrate with my friends. We start measuring it on our own and we start calculating what God owes us. But the other way that this can go is that we can believe that God is just that half-senile, benevolent grandfather who is kind of half-asleep on the, you know, some of you might be this way today after, after the Steeler game. You might be half-senile on your couch, somewhat benevolent depending upon the outcome of the game. I hear you. But just as long as everyone had a good time, I'm okay with it. Just as long as that's the rules that are followed, there's no real relationship there, but just a kind of a warm, fuzzy presence. And we can start to think of God as that way without having a real relationship with God. Our our minds are wired to, to make the easiest path possible. When we learn something, we learn the easiest way to do it. We learn the shortest way to do it. Our brains like to automate things. Our brains like to, to, to not think about things more than once. Ever notice when Steve Job was, Jobs was alive that he did not have much of a wardrobe? What did he wear? A black turtleneck. Every single thing. Black turtleneck, black slacks. We like the ease of things. And if we aren't careful, if we make our relationship with God into rule-keeping, we will automate God in our lives and totally ignore 
God's leading, God's presence, and God's desire for our lives. And so we want to to make sure that we are intentionally engaging God. Like I said last week, our emotions may may be dictators, but God is not that pushy. God is not going to to shout into our life. And so how do we incorporate this idea of of God being our true north, Christ being a true north? I'm going to suggest three real quick things, because I know there's chili waiting. First of all, we seek God's leading like David sought God's leading. We depend on God in our daily lives in a way that incorporates Him personally and and as a priority. We do not automate God. We do not presume on God's leading. We do not presume on the Holy Spirit. And so we say, Lord, today looks like yesterday, but I know that you see more than that. And so, Lord, what will you have me do today? Where is your spirit leading me? Where can I reflect your grace? Where can I do your will? Because only you know what that's going to look like. And so we seek God's leading like David. Like I said, we don't reduce our relationship to God with, uh, to, into rules for living. We, we don't automate it. We don't put it on autopilot. We don't set a GPS and, and, and go about our business. We don't make our relationship with God a crockpot relationship where we set it and forget it. We don't reduce that to a set of relationships, but we engage God because God desires to engage us personally each and every day of our life. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But the third way to incorporate this is to recognize that all of this requires energy. All of this requires energy because our desire, like I said, our brain's desire is to just automate things and to make things as simple as possible. And so it takes energy for us to each and every day wake up and say, Lord, where are you leading? And so to recognize that is part of the battle because otherwise we will fall into that complacency. We will fall into that automation. We will fall into that 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 reductionism. And so if we recognize that we seek, that we need to, to spend energy, excuse me, if we recognize that we need to spend energy, if we don't reduce our relationship to rules for living, and then if we seek God's leading, like David's is an example to us, then we start to allow God to be our true north. And we allow God to set the direction of our life each and every day. And then we find faithfulness becomes our true north. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that you have not left us alone, that that you have given these examples to show us that a relationship with you is more complex than we want to make it. Lord, our, our 
simple minds want to make things into an either this or that. We, we look at stories and we say, well, it was either the, the, the elders or the young people, and you come in and say, no, it wasn't because it was all about me and the relationship that I desired to have with Rehoboam and Jeroboam and with the people of Israel and even with us right now. You are still pursuing us and remind us of that as we seek to pursue you. Show us what faithfulness looks like. Help us to live into faithfulness and in our doing that we would become more and more as your son would have us to be. And as we do those things, that we would show those around us what life with you is like. Lord, we give you thanks in all of these things, and we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.